I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 113 this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 510. Before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our Lord and God, we give you thanks for your good and your steadfast love endures forever. What comforts that you hear the prayers and the cries of your people and tenderly provide that which we truly need, granting to us peace and joy and hope, the wonder of our salvation in Christ our Lord. May you enable us this day to praise you more and more with our lives, with our whole hearts, as you sustain us by your loving grace. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. The word of our God, you may be seated. Now, Psalm 113 continues, obviously, this theme of praising the Lord that we looked at last week from Psalm 111. And this psalm, as you notice, really covers the whole spectrum of reality, from the heights above where the Lord reigns on high to the lowliest parts of the earth where the needy and the destitute dwell. And it is a psalm that exalts and praises the name of the Lord for His transcendence because His majestic nature fills the entire created order. Well, it is a psalm as well that captures the imminence of the Lord, His condescension to reach down in His mercy, even to the most lowly and despised, and to lift them on high. Now, throughout the book of Psalms, we find these small groupings of psalms that are tied together, either because of theme or because of the way in which they were used on particular days that fell upon the Jewish calendar. You might recall that some time ago we went through Psalms 120 to 134. They all have that same title of a psalm of ascents. Those were a type of hymn book that would have been used by God's people as they traveled from the surrounding villages and towns to the city of Jerusalem to offer their worship and praise and sacrifice to the Lord. Now here in this section of the Psalter, we find another such cluster of psalms from 113 to 118 that would have been used for the yearly Passover celebration. If you have some study Bible with you, you might note there it probably says that these psalms are categorized as Egyptian Hallel psalms. Egyptian because they were of course, reflecting upon the Lord's deliverance from Egypt. And Hallel just means praise, as in hallelujah, praise the Lord. Now, the Passover was a wonderful opportunity for the children of Israel 
to reflect upon the Lord's power, kindness, and mercy to them. But as they reflected upon those things, it was not just to be a nostalgic remembrance of the past, but they were to draw, we could say, present-day implications for what the Lord had done for them in that past deliverance. And while there were many rituals that became attached to the Passover feast as the generations went on, the reality is the Passover was never meant to be mere ritual filled with activities, with a sort of checklist of duties that the children of Israel were to go through, but it was to be a day of heartfelt remembrance, a recollection upon the Lord's kindness and goodness, praising and thanking the Lord for His covenant faithfulness to them. So the custom was to sing the first two psalms, this one in Psalm 114, before the Passover meal, and then the remaining four afterward. So let's see how Psalm 113 helps to set the tone in preparing the heart of the worshiper to praise the Lord. So just as it would have been used to prepare the heart of the worshiper to come to the Passover feast, let's think about how this psalm can help to prepare our own hearts as we come to the table of the Lord this morning. And so our first point today is the call to praise. Verses 1 through 3, the call to praise the Lord. Now, there's a great deal that we learn in these first three verses of this psalm in terms of what it is to praise the Lord. Remember last week when we see this phrase, hallelujah, praise the Lord, it is both a proclamation, we might think of it as a declaration of intent on the part of the psalmist, but it is also a summons, a call to worship, a charge to the people of God to come with the psalmist to praise the Lord together. And so let's notice several things about this call to praise. First, we are told what to do, namely to praise and bless the name of the Lord, for He alone is worthy. Now, the object of our praise and worship is, of course, the Lord. Now, this might seem like a fairly obvious thing for us to state that the object of our worship, of our praise, is the Lord. Who else are we going to worship? You might say, of course, worship is about the Lord. Of course, our praise should be directed toward Him. But in a variety of ways, the church has gone astray, losing this primary focus of worship that we gather to exalt the name of the living God. The temptation is for us to make worship about ourselves, to presume that worship is about the worshiper. We're Americans, after all, and everything else in life is about us. Everything is about the consumer and our consumption or gratification of our desires. And so, shouldn't worship be a matter of consumption as well? J.I. Packer says we tend to be man-centered by habit when we should be God-centered by habit. And so, God-centered worship helps us learn to be God-centered people. Now, certainly there are great benefits for the worshiper in coming to worship the Lord, but it is not about us. It's about God. Our praise is to be directed toward Him because ultimately He alone is worthy. And so very simply, when we leave a place like this where we gather with God's people or if we're traveling or visiting elsewhere, the types of questions that should fill our minds and our conversations as we leave are things like this. 
Was God honored? Was He worshipped and adored? Was the gospel of Christ Jesus proclaimed as the only hope for lost sinners? What did I learn of the nature of God? Or what did I relearn today that I needed to hear again to draw comfort from in my own life? How was my heart stirred toward greater devotion to the Lord? It should not be such things as, what did you think of the music? What did you think of the length of the sermon? Or what about the selection of donut holes? But no, this psalm, by beginning and ending with this summons and this declaration to praise the Lord, sort of bracketed or bookended, we might say, with this call to praise that helps us to see that all of worship, in fact, all of life is about the Lord our God. He alone is worthy of our praise. One pastor put it like this, this is a call to offer God-exalting, God-centered, God-intoxicating praise, for He alone is worthy. So what does it mean when the psalmist goes on to tell us to praise His name or to bless His name? What does it mean, excuse me, to praise the name of the Lord? Well, very simply, the name of the Lord is His self-revelation. We worship Him based upon His self-disclosure. We worship God who has shown Himself to us, and we worship Him as He has shown Himself to us. Now, here's why this is important, because most people in our time presume that they can approach God any way that they please and can conceive of Him in any way that they like. And so, you'll hear people say things like this all the time, I prefer to think of God as loving and kind and tolerant and benevolent, not to think of Him as a God of justice or wrath. But that is not the name of the Lord because that is not how He has revealed Himself to us. If we are going to praise His name, then that presupposes that we have some sort of knowledge of that name, that we have some understanding of who He is. And so, only as we approach God on His terms, namely through the mediatorial work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and only as we worship Him according to how He prescribes, was that worship acceptable before Him. And we're not left to guess how we might approach Him, and we're not left to guess on what we are to call His name. His Word is clear. He is our King, and He is our Lord. He is our Savior, and He is our Shepherd. He is our Redeemer. He is our Helper. He is our physician, and He is our Father in heaven, and much more. He is wisdom itself. He is truth, and He is goodness. He is holiness. He is justice, and He is mercy. He is our strength and our power. He is our peace and our rest. He is our rock and our shelter. He is our refuge and our tower, and so, so much more. His name is truly wonderful. And since His name is to be blessed forever, as we read in verse 2, this means His name is unchanging because He is the unchanging God. And so, the comfort for us here is that in your own reading and studying of Scripture, if you learn some truth about the Lord's nature, you can bank on it, as it were. You can cherish it, and you can meditate upon 
the truths of such things and the implications of those things for your own life. Now, there might be some who scoff at the value of reading rich theology from our Reformed heritage, but there are wonderful things to read from our fathers of the faith as they instruct us on the various attributes of God's nature, helping us to learn more about His name, that our response would be greater and greater praise. Praise should be the dominant note in the life of the believer in Christ. Praise should truly characterize our lives. To praise the Lord is to adore Him. It is to thank Him. It is to exalt His name. It is to lift Him on high. It is to put Him in the proper place within your life, at the very center, that all things might revolve around Him, that you might grow to understand that everything in your life is about the glory of God. To praise Him is to acknowledge, as we saw last week, who He is and what He has done in the beauty and splendor of His creation, in the wondrous hope of His redemption, and the comfort that He guides and directs the steps of His children. Now, what does it mean as the psalmist goes on to bless the name of the Lord? Now, when we think of the Lord blessing us, we can think of all various benefits of our salvation, the cleansing that is ours through the shed blood of Christ, justifying grace that comes through faith alone in Christ alone, the assurance of pardon of sins, the wonder of His persevering grace in our lives, and the great hope and comfort of that glorification life to come at the end of this age. These are among the wonderful blessings that the Lord showers upon His people. Now, to bless the name of the Lord, of course, is not to add anything to the Lord, for He is infinite and eternal, and nothing can be added to Him. But it is, as one scholar put it, to take note of His glories and excellencies and respond to them in wonder and adoration. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in this call to praise, we also learn who it is who is to do the praising. Namely, it is the servants of the Lord. Now, when we think of worship, we must always think of the heart of that inward man being engaged, giving in an ever-increasing measure the entire self to the Lord in adoration and in thanksgiving for the wonder of His salvation. Now, just because you come to this place or any other place to worship the Lord and that just because you sit through the elements of worship doesn't make you a worshiper. Any more than me sitting on my bicycle in my garage makes me a triathlete. Would it be that easy? But true praise can only come from the heart. True praise can only come as the mind is engaged, reflecting upon the wondrous truth and promises and exhortations of God's Word. And there must be discipline to lay aside those things that preoccupy the mind when we gather as God's people. We are to be mindful of who we are, that we are servants of the Lord. And this word that is translated as servant is an interesting word. It can also be translated as slave, depending upon its context. And when Israel was held captive in Egypt, they were, of course, slaves within the land. 
The Pharaoh presumed to have a relationship with the children of Israel that was not his, that he presumed to be the master, the ruler over them, that he could enslave these people and force them to do his bidding. But the covenant God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob redeemed them, released them from slavery by asserting his sovereign lordship not only over the children of Israel, but asserting his lordship over the Pharaoh and the false gods of the land, pouring out those ten plagues upon them, truly decimating those false gods. And so by virtue of that deliverance, the Lord is, among other things, the master of his people. Now, they are not slaves, per se, to the living God, but they are servants of the great king. They are servants of this one who has been so gracious and merciful, who rules over them in tenderness and kindness, who has united them to himself in that covenantal relationship, that marital-type bond of intimacy as he provides for them and shepherds them through the wilderness. And so how important it is in our own lives that we too are mindful that we have been made servants of the Lord through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And it is both a privilege and a duty for us to offer our praise to Him. Because as a servant of the Lord God, we never lay aside that identity of belonging to Him. And this call to servitude is reiterated by the Lord Jesus in His earthly ministry in his teaching on discipleship. The call to being a disciple is none other than being called to be a servant of the Lord. Jesus says this calling is really an all-consuming one. In Matthew 16, for example, our Lord says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so, remembering this important relationship that we are servants and that He is our God and King, that keeps us humble. It keeps us from making inappropriate demands of Him. It helps us to remember our place in that covenantal relationship. And again, to be mindful of who He is as the master over us. And one more thing to notice about this call to praise. How are we to go about praising and blessing His name? When and where are we to praise Him? Well, verses 2 and 3 tell us, from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting. And so we are to praise Him now in the present. We are to praise Him tomorrow and the next day, and the next, and the next, in perpetuity, forever, from this time forth, and forevermore. For He is worthy, and the worth of our Lord never diminishes. Praise is to be the sustainable feature of God's children. We should not praise Him only when circumstances are going the way that we want in our lives. We should not praise Him only when our emotions are lined up properly. Pastor H.B. Charles puts it like this, whatever is going on in your life right now, 
Now is always a good time to offer praise to our God. Whatever we might face in the future, we are to bless Him at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. Any time is a good time to praise His name. There is never a time when it is inappropriate to praise Him. And any place is a good place to praise His name, from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting. Wherever we might find ourselves in the Lord's providence, wherever He may direct our steps, that is a place in which we can praise His name. From the first thought that fills our mind in the morning to the last thing that preoccupies us as we lie to bed at night, praise the Lord. Whatever the circumstances are, it is a good time to praise Him. Wherever we are is a good place to praise His name. And so when this call to praise, in these first three verses, we learn who we are, servants owned by the living God. We learn who the Lord is in the splendor of His name, the Master who rules over His people. We learn what we are to do, namely praise and bless the name of the Lord, and we learn how we are to go about doing it continuously, regardless of circumstances and wherever we might be. But there's still more. Notice that the psalmist goes on to praise the Lord for His transcendence. Look again at verse 4. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? And just think of the comfort of belonging to a God who is so high and exalted, who is above the nations that there is nothing that threatens His position of authority. In all of the presumption of mankind of His own greatness and His importance, the Lord is over them all and will one day set all things right. The pagan nations that lived surrounding the nation of Israel had a pantheon of gods that they would worship. And it all depended upon where they were geographically. If they were in the high plains, they worshiped the gods of that location. If they were in the lowlands, there were gods there. If they were on the coastal regions or the seas, there were gods that filled the created order. But the God of Israel is above them all. He is the one true God. He is the one who dwells in inapproachable light. His glory is so great that no one can ascend to Him. No one can venture into that heavenly throne room, for no one could find it on their own, let alone access it through their own abilities, achievements, or insights. In fact, His glory is so majestic, it is so wonderful, it is so inexpressible that in verse 6, the psalmist says he even looks down upon the heavens. Isn't that remarkable? That even if you were to afford a, a ticket on the next SpaceX flight or win some drawing and go with Jeff Bezos on his quest to be a real astronaut, as high as you might get, you were still going to look up to the heavens. But the Lord is so magnificent that He looks down upon the highest heavens. It sort of reminds me of what we read in Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel, when man presumes upon his greatness, seeking to make a name for himself. 
And in all of his boasting and all of his glory, the text tells us that the Lord must come down to see what man thinks is so great about himself. And verse 5 is obviously a rhetorical question. Who is like our God? The answer is, obviously, no one is like him. And how our hearts should be filled with joy and praise and thanksgiving that our God is in a category unto himself. That there are things about the nature of the Lord that we can ascribe to nothing else in the created order. We read, for example, in Isaiah chapter 40, that our God measures the waters in the entire face of the earth and holds them in the palm of his hand. That he marks up the heavens with a span that is from the tip of his thumb to his little finger. That the nations of the world are as mere dust on the scales before his greatness. And further in verse 5, he highlights the power of God by stating that he sits on high. Our God sits upon his throne, not because he is in need of rest, not because he is indifferent to the things of this world, not because he is inactive, but he sits as the king who knows no rivals. No one can ever displace him from that throne. He is never up for re-election. His reign is never in doubt, and it will never end. Just think of how someone in our culture, as they rise to celebrity status, become more inaccessible. We might think of a local football player who is from our community, who is a standout star, who gets all sorts of scholarship offers to Division I schools and plays in a Power Five conference and continues to excel and gets drafted in the first round. The greater he becomes, the less accessible he is. But our God is not like that. While no one is higher than him, no one is greater than he is, no one is more majestic than him, he has also come down to our lowly estate. He looks down upon the heavens and the earth, and he knows with loving tenderness and care and intimacy each of his beloved children. Because this is not a mere gaze downward, but this is something much more remarkable. And that brings us to the final section of this psalm, praising the Lord for his imminence, for his humility and condescension. Look again at verse 9. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. And notice how this psalm describes our condition. Now, this is not a mere description of one who is economically poor or disadvantaged in some sort of social category. This is not God looking down upon the nations of the earth and saying that what is needed is some revolution of social justice to balance the scales of equity. This is something that is much deeper than a superficiality like that. This is a description of each one of us in our spiritual condition. In our rebellion against Him, you see, we are as lowly as the dust. We might think of the debris of a decimated city of the ancient world, one that has been destroyed and set on fire, burned beyond recognition, a pile of ash with no benefit, no value whatsoever. This is an apt picture of our fallen condition. 
Though verse 7 in the ESV says that the Lord lifts the needy from the ash heap, the literal reading is a dunghill. There's a a pile of filthy excrement, which is, of course, even worse. But what a fitting description of our lost and undone and rebellious state. And we have brought all of this upon ourselves. We have thrown ourselves into the dust, as it were. We have wallowed in the dunghill of our own foolishness, convincing ourselves that that is true life. And even more, we are likened to the barren woman who has no resources to care for herself. Her family name and line are in jeopardy, and she has no one to tend to her as she ages. These are all images of impoverishment, of death, of judgment. And this, you see, is what He has saved us from. But this is not a mere looking down and seeing us in this lowly condition and merely having pity towards us, but He is the God who acts. He is the God who stoops down to save the lowly and the defiled. You might think of a politician who campaigns on a promise to help the lowly. Everywhere he goes, he strategically selects those who represent the various sectors of those who were downtrodden or were impoverished in some way and has them on the stage with him for photo ops. He even integrates a tagline into his campaign speeches, and you see it on his posters and the yard signs around the community that he sees you. But that is nothing more than a platitude unless he actually does something when he is elected. Our God does not simply look down upon our needy and lowly condition, but he does something about it. And he does something much more remarkable than the wealthiest benefactor in the world could do for another. Through the greatest act of condescending weakness imaginable, the eternal Son of God comes to this earth to redeem us. The Lord, who is infinitely high, exalted above the heavens, has taken to Himself true flesh and a reasonable soul and has become fully man. In indescribable kindness and mercy, He took our place that we might be exalted. The same one who made the heavens and the earth humbled himself in such a manner that as he walked this earth, he had nowhere to lay his head. He had no earthly possessions, no riches, no comforts, though all of creation belongs to him. Though he was the king incarnate and deserved to sit in the most regal of palaces, instead he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And look at this wonderful picture of restoration, that he has made us sit with the princes. He has adorned us with incredible value and worth We are brought from that position of defilement, 
cleansed in the blood of Christ our Lord, clothed with His perfect robes of righteous obedience and placed upon a throne of royalty and brought into this kingdom of glory. And what does it mean when the text ends by telling us that He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children? As we saw in our Scripture reading earlier this morning from the book of First Samuel, this is virtually an identical reading from chapter 2, verse 8, where the barren woman in that place, Hannah, praises the Lord for the gift of her son, Samuel. And we know that the Lord intervenes throughout redemptive history to give life to those barren wombs of the matriarchs, preserving that redemptive line bringing life to Sarah, to Rebecca, to Rachel, and again here to Hannah. And within the lives of each of those chosen women, they have the joy of a blessed son. But it is not just a gift that the Lord gives to them to make them a mother, but each of those sons benefits the entire nation. But as blessed as the nation was from those sons, how much more blessed is the son born of the Virgin Mary who became the life-giving one for the nations of this world. The Lord's ability to bring life to the barren woman is not merely talking about physical offspring, but this is a picture of how the Lord brings life to those who are dead, making us fruitful in Christ, taking us from absolutely nothing to everything everything of eternal and lasting value. And in this psalm, we really have the great exchange that we read about throughout the Pauline epistles. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 8.9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In Romans 4, 25, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And the certainty of this heavenly destination for those in Christ Jesus is not merely something that we long for ahead at the end of this earthly life. In a book entitled God to Us, Covenant Theology and Scripture, the author Stephen Myers, as he is speaking about the future reality of what awaits those in Christ Jesus, speaks about how that should reorient the Christian's life today. Listen to what he says. In Revelation chapter 22, we read that the new Jerusalem will descend, and the certainty of that must radically reorient the Christian's life today. The present world desperately wants to convince God's people that it and its things are the ultimate final reality. This world wants Christians to think that the future is decided not by the covenantal promises of God, but by the whims of human beings and by the appetites of their own hearts. Daily, Christians believe that lie. We think it is more important to keep the peace with a friend than to tell him one more time about Jesus. 
We think it is more important to pursue our hobbies than to spend time in public worship and in private devotion. We think it is more important to cling to that old bitterness, that old grudge that has become so much a part of us than to lay that bitterness down and seek after righteousness. We think it is more important to fit in and have friends than to have holiness of life. We think it is more important to gratify the flesh than to obey God's Word. We place more value on the esteem of our bosses or our families or our friends than on the esteem of Almighty God. We think that this world with its material goods and its commonplace idolatry and its ever-present self-absorption, we think that it will last forever while holiness and worship are of value only in certain settings. Now, certainly few would say that with their lips, but if you were to list your activities throughout the week, your thoughts and your affections, what would that list say? We live as if this world will last forever, but in Revelation 22, the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures shows us a world where holiness and worship abound, and the Spirit tells us, this is reality. This is forever. We must live in light of that which endures. And you know, it's entirely possible this, this little collection of psalms were recited and sung by the disciples in the upper room as he prepares to be handed over to condemnation. We read in Matthew chapter 26, after they ate the Passover meal together, that they sang a hymn together and then departed to the Mount of Olives, perhaps singing from this portion of the Psalter. And while the disciples would have been thinking back to that first Passover celebration, when the children of Israel were still in Egypt, and it was that shed blood of the substitutionary lamb that paved the way for their deliverance from captivity, the mind of our Savior was upon something much greater that the disciples had yet to really understand. He knew that He was about to go to the cross. He spoke of this as His exodus from this world, that He would go to the cross, through the grave, and come alive from the tomb, and that this work would then culminate in His ascension to that heavenly throne room, His rightful place above. And it is this substitutionary work which ushers in our great exodus from bondage to sin and ultimately from the sin-cursed world in which we live. Charles Spurgeon says, The psalm concludes as it began, praising the Lord from the first syllable to the last. May our lives reflect this same character and never know a break or a conclusion. May we bless the Lord all of the days of our life, for He never fails us, and His mercies never cease, even into the ripeness of abundant age. What a fitting psalm as we prepare now to come to the table of the Lord. Christ is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. And He delivered us from an oppression that was so much more severe than even that bondage in Egypt. And this table of the Lord, as we come to it, is an occasion to give Him thanks for that salvation.